Welcome, Welcome to Crime Chasers. Crime Chasers. Welcome to the very first episode of Crime Chasers. My name is FJ. And I'm NJ. We're two true crime-obsessed best friends who want to highlight people of color who went undetected for their crimes, and more importantly, raise awareness for the victims who were often neglected or denied justice as a result of their skin color. To truly understand the story of the Southside Slayer, we have to begin in the city of Los Angeles in the year 1987. On March 9th, two motorists were passing the Harbor Freeway, which is located only 13 minutes away from LAX, where they spotted a body. Upon arrival, police found the body of a young black woman who would later be identified as Diane Johnson. Her body was found partially nude, it displayed signs of sexual assault, and the police were able to collect a DNA sample. Diane Johnson was often seen around the south side of Los Angeles, where some people believed that she worked as a sex worker. Following the discovery of her body, there really wasn't much traction in the case. Although police were able to collect the DNA sample, I think it's important to let our listeners know that the DNA sample was actually used for the very first time in an American case, just one year prior. So it was still a relatively new concept to be used in criminal investigations. Unable to find any leads, the case goes unsolved. It isn't until seven months later, in the month of October, where another body was found. A woman named Annette Ernest, a 26-year-old, was found with her face down on the shoulder of a dirt road near Grand Avenue and 106th Street in Vermont Vista, an area that's only seven minutes away from where Diane's body was found. Annette's body was also partially nude and also had signs and evidence of sexual assault. The difference between her and Diane was that Annette was actually strangled to death. So despite two bodies now being found in the same general area with similar causes of death, no connection was made in terms of the investigation. Less than two years go by before another body is found. On January 1989, Anita Breer, a 27-year-old woman who had a known crack addiction and according to reports was working to get clean, was found in a garage off of Figueroa Street, which again was in the same area that both Diane and its bodies were found. She was found partially nude as well and strangled to death. Eight months later, a woman named Regina Washington, a 27-year-old woman, was found partially nude and strangled in a garage right off of Figueroa Street. Which makes this even more heartbreaking is that Regina was believed to be between five and a half to six and a half months pregnant. The fetus's death was caused by the mother's death, and doctors would later report that the fetus was actually viable at the time of death. Now we have four bodies and a fetus. Time progresses, and there are no killings that 
consists of the same MO for about four years. Don't get me wrong, there were still killings of black women who were considered high risk. High risk meaning women who were considered to be prostitutes, drug addicts, and people who were homeless. It's also important to note that this was during the time of the crack epidemic, and when the death of a black body wasn't given much case study, a practice we still see today. So once four years go by, another victim is found with the same memo as the previous victims. A 29-year-old woman named Andrea Triplett was found in a vacant building, partially nude, sexually assaulted, and strangled. Like Regina, Andrea was also five and a half months pregnant. And then, not even four weeks go by before another black woman is found. This time, it was a woman named Desiree Jones, a 29-year-old that was found strangled in a backyard. Desiree was also a victim to the crack epidemic and was working on getting clean. After Andrea was found, her family was notified, and this is the very first time we really get any information about the families. Her mother actually held a funeral dinner within the community to celebrate the life of her daughter and her potential grandchild. Investigators began making connections of the strangulations in 1995. Three women with similar cause of death and geographic location were connected, and a man named David Allen Jones was convicted. David was a white janitor who previously served time for the attempted rape of a prostitute. It should be noted that David had the mental capacity of an eight-year-old, but was convicted of the murder of the three women and a subsequent rape of a separate woman. There were many issues with the conviction of David Jones. First, David's confession was taken without an attorney present. And the conviction did not rely on the DNA evidence that was presented on the women. And there was also blood evidence found. Now, the blood evidence in record was type A, but David's blood type was type O. At the time, the current investigators felt that David's case was closed. It was solid due to the confession. But another detective felt that these cases were not supported enough. So the case essentially goes cold. Pretty much. A turning point in the case was the conviction of a man named Chester Turner, who was found guilty for the rape of a woman he knew within his community in 2002. The victim of this rape managed to escape and went to the police station and put in a report for the sexual assault. Initially, police didn't take much in mind of the report. This was just another streetwalker, as they described, who was just making false allegations on a John. But later, police began to look closely at the location of the incident and realized that this occurred in the same area as all the sexual assaults and murders of the women we've mentioned. After being convicted of rape, Chester was required to relinquish his DNA by the state of California. California legislation required inmates within the California state prisons to give up DNA if they were imprisoned for a felony to a system called CODIS. CODIS stands for Combined DNA Index System, which makes it easier to not only identify perpetrators, but also makes it easier for investigations to link crimes, especially those crimes that people would consider high risk, uh, such as sexual assault, robberies, murder is the biggest one. A man named Detective Cliff Shepard was recently promoted into a new position with the Cold Case Unit. Specifically, Detective Cliff worked on the case of a woman named Paula Vance. Paula Vance was a 38-year-old black woman who struggled with her mental health and was a very transient person. She was found dead in 1998 in the same areas as the previous victims. 
Paula was also raped and strangled. Luckily, investigators collected DNA from her body. So Detective Cliff ran the sample through CODIS. In 2003, the DNA sample collected from Paula matched the DNA involved in the rape case where Chester Turner was convicted. Now, this discovery prompted Detective Cliff to look for further similarities between Paula and the other victims whose cases had went cold. The detective also looked to include victims that David was convicted of killing. Considering the fact that these murders are all occurring within the same area with the same people and the same method. Detective Cliff flagged murders for location, motive, type of killing, and gender of victims. And within that process, David and the three murder victims he was serving time for came forth. As Detective Cliff looks into the case, he finds that the statement that David made does not appear to be completely voluntary given. And the evidence that was brought to support this was very shaky. Specifically, the blood types did not match, nor did any of the bodily fluid match David. So Detective Cliff not only found that Paula was a DNA match for Chester, but nine other victims had DNA matches. Not only was the DNA an indicator, but all victims were strangled. Eight victims were strangled using the killer's bare hands, and two victims were strangled by ligatures. And ligatures are just any binds or ties. With these connections now made, and the DNA evidence supporting the findings, in 2004, David was released from prison after serving 11 years. And the city of L.A. swiftly awarded him $720,000 for his wrongful imprisonment. Now, it must be mentioned that there was not any major reporting about this. The prison release was very quiet, and even the award provided was only recently disclosed. So... The police were very smart in trying to push one person out and build an even stronger case against Chester Turner. Chester Turner is then tried for murder. But before we get into the details of the trial, let's go over some background info on Chester. He was born in November of 1966 in Warren, Arkansas. He moved to LA with his mother when he was only five years old, following the separation of his parents. Chester attended public schools in LA and was reported to be a bad student. He eventually dropped out of high school. When Chester was only 20 years old, he worked at Domino's as a pizza delivery man. He also worked as a neighborhood crack cocaine dealer in the area right off Figueroa Street. So a lot of these women would have known him just from his occupation. Exactly, he was their local dealer. And this is especially during the time of the crack epidemic. He was also known for not only providing drugs, but for also, I quote, being off his rocker whenever he got mad. His mother kicked him out due to his drug use and alcohol abuse. Around the late 80s, his mother actually moved to Utah, and Chester began living in homeless shelters. With girlfriends or friends kind of cuff searching, trying to find a place, but always on the move. It was during this time that the murders began. Chester spent a great deal of his life in and out of prison for various crimes, such as sexual assault, assaulting a police officer, and even incidents of animal cruelty. So aren't those kind of the telltale signs that someone could be, let's say, a serial killer? Yes, they actually are. So investigators were able to link Chester's time in prison with the breaks between the murders. Investigators also noted in 1994, Chester went to go visit his mother in Salt Lake City with his new girlfriend. 
During his time there, he worked at a homeless shelter as well as a fast food restaurant. When Chester returned to LA in 1995, this is when police had found the body of another woman named Natalie Price. She was found in a vacant building, partially nude, and strangled. She was also located in close proximity to the other victims in the area where Chester lived. Over the next three years, three more victims were found, strangled, partially nude, and in close geographic location to Chester in his residence. Later in reports, one of the victims, the woman named Andrea, whose mother held the family dinner, said that Chester was actually present at the funeral event, eating with the family and the community, mourning over the death of the woman he killed. Chester was tried and convicted for the deaths of 10 victims and one fetus. But wait, I thought there was two. Yes, but in the case of Andrea Triplett, her murder took place in 1993, and California law did not consider the fetus viable at the time, so they couldn't charge Chester with that murder. The prosecution based their case on the DNA that was found within all the victims, the cause of death being strangulation for most victims, and the geographic location of the victims. The geographic location is significant because most of the victims' bodies were found within 30 blocks of wherever Chester was living. Chester's defense team tried to assert that Chester was a known drug dealer. He would often trade drugs to these women for sex, so it's only logical that his DNA would be on all the victims. They also brought forth that other DNA was found on the victims, and no one identified it. The defense framed that due to the women's risky lifestyles, there was a wide pool of possible killers, and Chester was just being picked on because he was already in the system. The prosecutors refuted this theory. They asserted, while this may be true, the only commonality in DNA was from Chester. His DNA was present on every victim, and the other identified DNA, it was not, it was anomaly. So it may be on one person or two, but not on everyone. So the prosecution also brought forth that the manner and location in which these victims were dumped was very similar because most victims were actually dumped in alleys and in lots and something that they didn't release till later. The victims had their pants pulled down around their ankles and they all were laying face down. There were too many similarities for these actions simply to be a coincidence. Now the jury was pretty well vetted it was comprised of six men and six women, and ultimately it only took them two and a half days to deliver a guilty verdict. So, I have a theory based off some information I'm gonna give everyone. So when Chester walked out of the courtroom, he was very calm. Many people described him as pretty much indifferent to the guilty verdict. He seemed like he didn't even care what would happen to him. And all throughout, he just continued to assert that he did not kill these victims. He just slept with them. So now Chester's sitting on death row for the murder of 10 women. And then he received an additional 12 months for the death of the fetus. So my theory is Chester's sitting there because he has a lot more bodies under him. And he knows with the advent of technology, more people are going to come up. So the likelihood of him actually seeing death until he naturally dies is very small. I just think he's at a point where I've been in jail the majority of my life, so what is it going to hurt? It's three square meals. I'm on death row, so I'm by myself. You know, it's not that bad of a lifestyle for him because it's something that he's very accustomed to. I just think it's very strange for someone to receive 
you know, a death sentence and come out very cool, calm and collected, considering he is a very hot tempered person and he didn't react in any way to the verdict. He was just very stealth, almost cold. Seven years later, in the summer of 2014, Chester was again convicted of four more murders of black women. 33-year-old Alondra Bunn, 28-year-old Deborah Williams, 42-year-old Mary Edwards, and 30-year-old Cynthia Johnson. So just like I said, he had more lined up. These women were also killed in a similar manner, dumped in the same area as the other victims, and fit the gender and racial group that Chester was known for engaging with in. So even after this case, Chester left the courtroom, and it was very eerie. Um, it led a lot of people to feel like there are more bodies connected to his signature. So he basically left and looked at the judge and said, you'll see me again. Oh. <laughs> and it just gave everyone just a terrible feeling because, and these are all happening in the late 80s and early 90s. So people are really wondering, even though he's, you know, sitting on death row, still in a California state prison, how many more bodies are under him? He's currently at 14 women and one fetus and has been noted as one of the most prolific serial killers of his time. I just wonder how many more are out there that are going to be connected? How many more families just don't know what's going on in their daughters are just there and looked at as another statistic of you know the crack epidemic or just being black in the south side of california i just think it's a really sad case when you have someone who obviously has knowledge and just hides in plain sight i also find it very heartbreaking how there is such a lack of care and urgency when it comes to black bodies. True. That it doesn't matter when they find a blanket, blame, like, oh, it's the crack epidemic. Like, no one really cares. Like, if this was different and it was a group of white women being killed and strangled, I think it would be more covered in not only the news outlets, but, like, just more talked about. I feel like this is a history that, yes, the serial killer was black, but by burying him and his name, you also lose the victims. I agree. It's just one of those things where I don't understand why it took 10 women. Because these women were killed, like we said, same way. Within 30 blocks, it wasn't even far-fetched where they were. And they were all kind of same community. And it didn't dawn on them to look in with, within that community to see, are there some similarities here? Oh, there are a lot. And I think just the idea that this is a man they've seen and had encounters with multiple, numerous times. And it makes you wonder, like, how did he pick out his victims? Like, did he just, was it like a kind of, a, oh, I see her today, let me go ahead and kill her today. Like, how did that work? When from the cases we've read, it seems kind of evident that he did have contact with these women over numerous times. Yeah, and not just them, their families. He was integrating himself. Oh, we're going to figure this out. Up. Like. I'm supporting you. He was a community staple. Everyone knew Chester. And I think the fact that we don't have more research in his thought process is baffling. It's almost as if he laughed in the face of the police because he left his DNA everywhere. He did it right in his own backyard. And no one said anything. No one was the wiser. Even when the woman came forward, like we said, and did the police report, it still took them some time to actually believe her. Or take her seriously at all. So... 
I think this was just one of those cases where you feel justice and you feel glad for the families that have the knowledge. But at the same time, you're wondering to yourself, are police actively working to see how many more are under him? Or is this just a case of we're really happy that we've tied the knots that we've tied and now we can move on? We would love our listeners' input. When looking at the evidence, what do you think? Feel free to email us at crimechaserspodcast at gmail.com. And make sure you follow us on Instagram at crimechaserspodcast. And remember, be alert and stay safe in these streets. And catch us next time on Crime Chasers. Chasers.